Good morning. Please open the perfect word of God with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. As we continue our study, not just of 1 Peter, but in particular, uh, a focused study of humility, having looked at humility towards one another, we have more recently been studying humility towards God, which is what Peter calls us to and commands in us. Our text is 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 7. But we're picking up in the middle of verse 5. This is the word of God. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Two Sundays ago, we looked particularly at God's mighty hand in afflictions where we saw that God's mighty hand, to which Peter refers, or which Peter mentions, is talking about the afflictions that God either sends our way or he permits in our lives. And we made that important distinction that I will continue to use throughout this sermon and others between God sending some afflictions and permitting others. In brief, very quickly, God sends afflictions that are sinless but painful. They are defects, but they're not defilements. God sends those things our way, but God permits the sins of men, the sins of people, which are uh, not just painful, but they're also wicked and evil. And God permits them not by giving permission, but by withholding his restraining grace by which uh, men would keep themselves from doing such wicked things. And then we concluded by talking about God's mighty hand and afflictions is not just sending and permitting them, but it's also in limiting them and leading them or guiding them uh, for good and for holy purposes. And we concluded by looking at the example of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on the cross, where you see a great um, deluge and, and flood of affliction as well as sin, affliction sent and sin permitted in the case of Christ. Uh, in, in those last days and hours of his life. And yet, what was it? If you look at it, you see suffering, you see pain, but you also see triumph and victory and glory as Jesus, as God, turns what is wicked and cursed into what is beautiful and blessed. Now, we're going to pick up where we left off. And it's one thing to say that God... Uh, bounds and guides all those afflictions that he sends or permits. It's another thing to say why or for what purposes. And so that the title of this sermon is God's wise purposes in afflictions. God's wise purposes. Remember last week or two weeks ago, I said that there's a, a much larger outline that's controlling these sermons and then they have their own subpoints. So this would in many ways be Big point two. Big point one would have been God's mighty hand in afflictions. And now we see God's wise purposes in afflictions. And this sermon is entirely focused on God's wise 
purposes and afflictions. And the specific angle or perspective is God's wise purposes with relation to me. Why does God permit or send afflictions in my life with relation to myself? And when we listen to the scripture's answers to this question, why does God permit these things or what are his wise purposes? When we hear this answer, it will better help us to humble ourselves under God's mighty and wise hand. So please consider with me seven things, seven wise purposes of God in sending or permitting afflictions in our lives. The first, to prove sincerity or expose hypocrisy. To prove sincerity or expose hypocrisy. You may not be a sports fan, but you've probably heard of the baseball team, the New York Yankees. And you've probably heard about them because they're popular. They're wealthy, and they've won many World Series, which is baseball's championship. But you know what? It's easy to be a Yankees fan. It's easy to root for a wealthy and successful team. And there are many people who never grew up in or near New York who are nevertheless Yankees fans because it's easy to be a Yankees fan. But real loyalty comes from loving a team and rooting for it even when they come close to winning but usually lose like the Dodgers (laughs) or rooting for a team that never wins like the Angels. That's why we talk about fair weather fans. They show up when the sun is shining and it's easy to sit in the seats in in the stands but then there are true fans that are there, whether it's raining or whether the sun or shining. The real test of loyalty is supporting something even when it's not easy for you or pleasant for you. Now, by way of analogy, on a much higher and more important level, sometimes in our context, it's easy to be a Christian. Sometimes it's very easy. We don't suffer for it very much or very often. Maybe in your particular life and circumstances, no one puts any pressure on you. No one criticizes you. It's easy. Uh, I went to Biola University, and people talk about the Biola bubble. You live there, and everything you do is there, and everyone you know is there. Sometimes there are challenges to being a Christian at Biola, sure, but sometimes our lives are insulated. This is not a, a comment about Biola. It's just a comment that sometimes the way in which you live, your life is very insulated, and maybe it's easy to be a Christian. Maybe it's even pleasantly easy. Things are just going along, and it's great. Well, turn with me to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. It's easy to bless God when God blesses you. Job chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? 
Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Satan says, yes, of course, Job is a faithful and good servant. You keep him from harm, and you bless him, so he blesses you. Satan says, but if you take away Job's blessings, he will curse you. What did God do? God permitted severe affliction in Job's possessions and in Job's family. And what did this do? What did this accomplish? God proved, God showed Job's sincerity. Because Job's response when his blessings were removed was not to curse God. His wife even said, curse God and die, Job. And he said, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. He did not accuse God of sinning. He did not curse God. He did not defy God. Did he have many questions after this? Yes, he certainly did. But he did not curse God for the blessings that were removed or for the afflictions that were sent his way. And so God proved Job's sincerity by permitting suffering and sending affliction his way. In our lives, in our cases, sometimes it's relatively easy to be a Christian. And God will send us afflictions so that we can humble ourselves under his mighty hand by showing our sincerity. Showing that we do not just bless God when we're blessed, but we also bless God and we trust him and we wait for him even when he removes those blessings. But if God permits affliction in your life and then you curse him as a result, what has happened? He's exposed your hypocrisy. Jesus spoke the parable of the seeds, the seeds that were cast on different types of ground. And if you recall in that parable, one of the seeds uh, was cast on stony ground and it sprouted quickly as the one who heard the gospel received it with joy, it says, at first. And then Jesus explains that that seed that sprouted quickly and then died quickly, he explains it's that when persecution came, the plant withered. And Jesus said of such a one, he has no root in himself. There's no reality in the plant, no vitality, no life. He has no root in himself. That, that person's hypocrisy was exposed. It was exciting and it was new to be a Christian. It was easy. You were on fire. But where was the life? Where was the root? Where was the sincerity? That persecution and that affliction exposed the hypocrisy and the insincerity of such a person. And so one of the wise purposes that God has when he sends or permits affliction in our lives is to prove our sincerity or to expose our hypocrisy. And the one who is like Job and does not curse God, but rather acknowledges God's sovereignty and submits to, his, to the afflictions he sends, that person is humbling themselves under God's mighty hand. To humble ourselves under God's mighty hand one of the things that that is, is acknowledging or, or proving ourselves to be sincere. Moving forward, number two, God's wise purpose in sending or permitting afflictions in the second place is to convict us of sin. 
to convict us of sin. His purpose is to lead us to say, I have sinned, or this is my fault. This summer we studied the book of Micah, and if you remember, Micah, like the other prophets, is one of the things that God is communicating to Israel through him, is that he's going to send the Assyrian armies against Israel, the northern kingdom, and then later he will send the Babylonian armies against Judah, the southern kingdom. And he's doing this because they have sinned, because they have been disobedient and wicked. And in, I'll, I'll read this to you. You don't need to turn there. It's just one verse. In Micah chapter 7, verse 9, Micah speaks for Israel in a way of humility. And he says, <clears throat> Micah 7, verse 9, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. God is sending these armies against Israel and Judah, and the prophet's response of humility is, I will bear this, I will suffer it, I will endure it, because I have sinned against God. That is a heart humbling itself under God's mighty hand and God's afflictions leading that person to say, this thing that I am suffering is because I have sinned against God. And one of the reasons why God sends or permits afflictions in our lives is to convict us of sin, to convict us of sin, to lead us to say, I have sinned. Perhaps you may be ignoring the warnings of your heart, the warnings of the word of God, the warnings of your friends or your family members or your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. What is it that will wake you up and cause you to acknowledge and recognize your own sin, sometimes it's affliction and suffering which comes about as a result of your own sin. Sometimes God's purpose is to lead us to say, it is because I have sinned against him, in the words of the prophet Micah. And when you say that, when you say, it is because I have sinned against him, then you have humbled yourself under God's mighty hand. And he has led you to conviction. Now, is every affliction designed to lead us to conviction of sin? Not necessarily. Was it so in the case of Job? No. Did Job sin some sin that brought upon him the affliction of his goods and his family? No. It was to prove his sincerity. It was not to convict him of sin, although God did bring to the surface Job's weaknesses later. So we should not automatically assume that anything and everything bad that happens to me is the result of some sin in my life. That would be an oppressive way to live your life. But neither should we automatically or entirely exclude the possibility. Ask yourself, is the Lord leading me? Is the Lord convicting me of sin in this affliction? We need to examine our own hearts and our own circumstances and repent of the sins that we've committed, humbly accepting any consequences for our actions. Thirdly, related to the previous point, thirdly, one of God's wise purposes is to discipline us for sin. To discipline us for sin. In the previous point, afflictions lead us to conviction. I have sinned. In other cases, it is to discipline us and to train us as a result of our sin, because of our sin. God sometimes sends or permits afflictions as a form of discipline to teach us the bitterness of sin. Turn with me, please, to Psalm 81. 
Psalm 81, verses 11 and 12. God says, speaking of Israel, but my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So God teaches, he reproves, he rebukes, he commands, he forbids, he bids and forbids, and Israel will not listen. Verse 12, so I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. What did God do? He permitted affliction, he permitted their sins by giving them over to themselves. He warned them, he rebuked them, he commanded them, he, he bade and forbade, and they persisted, they were stubborn. So he said, okay, I won't stop you. I won't stop you. He gave them over to their stubborn hearts and he did not restrain them. Why did God permit them to do this? Well, I could just read it to you, but I want you to read it with me. Turn to Jeremiah chapter two. In verse 19, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 19. So the question we're asking is, why did God give them over to their own hearts? Why did he withhold his restraining grace and let Israel do what Israel wanted to do in their stubbornness? This is why, Jeremiah 2.19, your evil will chastise you and your apostasy will approve you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. Notice, your evil will chastise you. I'm going to permit you to walk in the way that you want to walk so that your own sins will discipline you. Your apostasy will, will reprove you. Your wandering will be the very means of showing you what? That it is evil and bitter to forsake the Lord your God. Sometimes God gives his people what they want. And that's a scary thing. When he permits us to sin by not restraining us because of our stubbornness and our persistence and our refusal to submit what does it say? God opposes the proud. And so when we show ourselves proud and stubborn, one of the ways he opposes us is by saying, you want it, you got it. And then we see how evil and bitter it is. Children want to touch things, don't they? Some of those things are hot. We say, no touch, ouch, ouch, hot, hot. But they want to touch it. <laughs> you know how it is. And understanding me carefully here, perhaps you let the child in a, in a careful environment of scientific testing, perhaps you let the child touch the thing, not a thing that would be of severe danger to them, but why? Because the moment they do, they will learn the lesson that your words have clearly not accomplished in teaching them. You can teach with words, but you can also teach with letting them actually touch the thing they wanted to touch despite your warnings. You said no touch, you said it's hot, you said ouch. You told them everything they need to know, but they still want to touch the thing. And so what will actually teach them? Ouch, 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 I told you so. Or your child says, I have a project due tonight. And you say, sorry, you're gonna get an F. You're gonna fail. 
I'm not going to do it for you. You should have done this. Your teachers told you. I told you. Guess what? You're going to fail so that you see how evil and bitter it is to procrastinate. We allow their own failures, their own poor decisions, and their own sins to be the very thing that disciplines them. And God does this to his children. God wisely disciplines us for sin to teach us the bitter lesson of walking waywardly. It's a fearful thing for God to give you over to yourself. I gave them over to their own stubborn hearts. Just last week, Hayden was preaching from the prodigal son. The prodigal son said, I want the inheritance now. I want my portion now. The father gave it to him. Okay, take it. And it was the bitterness and the disgustingness of his circumstances that he eventually ended in that reproved him as he's eating things that pigs wouldn't even eat. It's that which teaches him the true lesson. And at times, that's the way that God deals with us. He, he gives us over to the stubbornness of our hearts. He gives us over to what we want so that ultimately we learn the lesson. We must humble ourselves under his mighty hand by submitting to his discipline before it gets to that point. But God resists the proud. So if you will not submit, but you are stubborn, then what will happen? You will find life to be more and more bitter. And you need to bring yourself low because of your sin as you are brought to conviction, the previous point. And then you need to submit to the discipline, not blaming God, but being reproved by your own apostasy and your own wickedness. And the bitterness in your mouth is not from God, it's from your own deeds, is it not? But we need to understand that when God permits even our own sins, he does so with a wise and fatherly purpose of teaching us. Now again, should we automatically assume that any and every affliction is because of some sin God is disciplining me? Again, not necessarily. And it would be a burden to think that every bad thing that happens to you is a direct punishment. We just read today in Luke that a tower fell on 18 people and that Pilate uh, Herod put to death certain persons and Jesus says, is it because they were worse sinners? No, that's not why. There were other purposes that God had in permitting these disasters. And so also, there are people who will think if they get a cold, oh no, what, in what way have I sinned? It's not that. You were around someone who had a cold and you got the virus from them. It's natural processes. That's part of also God's permission in this life. But we shouldn't automatically interpret providence as, what sin have I sinned and how do I undo this? When God disciplines us for sin, the bitterness in your mouth is not a cold. <laughs> the bitterness in your mouth is the pain and the regret and the shame of your sins and the consequences for your sin. When we talk about God's wise purposes, it doesn't mean that every single one applies to every affliction. And so we need to ask ourselves, is God disciplining me? Is God disciplining me for sin? Search your heart. And you can say like, like, J, like Job or like David in some of the Psalms, Lord, I, I'm innocent in this matter. And so do not automatically assume, but neither should you automatically exclude this possibility. Some things are just the result of natural processes. If you're around someone who's sick, you'll get sick. Don't overthink it. But then there are many other cases where we do indeed have to face the consequences of our own sin, and it is bitter. 
and it is painful. And that is God having permitted us to get what we want in a fatherly way, disciplining us to teach us the lesson so that we will not repeat it. We will not touch that burning thing again. And we will not go that way again because it is bitter and it is evil and it is painful. Fourthly, number four, to prevent us from sinning. When I was growing up, there was a small strip of woods behind our house, and there were certain places within those woods that I could not go. Not because I was not allowed, but because I was not able to go to those parts of the woods. There were thick brambles and prickly plants and bushes that grew thickly and densely in certain places and at certain times of the year. I I couldn't get through them. And I would try to go through the process of of cutting them down, and then my mom would say, why are you using my shears in the woods? Sorry, mom. That's like using her sewing scissors for, well, never mind. I didn't have the tools necessary to tame the woods, and so the brambles kept me out of certain places that I wanted to go. And every now and then, I would see raspberries Raspberries grew wild in these woods, and and you want them. You want to eat them, and you can get some of them, but you can't get all of them because of the the, the thorny and spiny brambles. And I just hated them. They were a waste of space in the woods. They were a nuisance. They were a killjoy. They were good for nothing, and they, they were painful if you tried to deal with them. And then my clothes would get ripped, and it was just the worst. They were altogether unlovely and irksome. Sometimes God plants briar patches and brambles in your way. And you don't like it. It's prickly and it's uncomfortable, painful and annoying. But it may be because those raspberries are actually not raspberries. They're a poisonous fruit and you don't know it. What if there's something in the way of what you want, but you don't realize that what you want is not good for you? And it's best that you not have that thing. A barbed wire fence may keep you out of a particular place, but what if that's because there's a pit bull inside? Or at the zoo, there are lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. We need to understand that sometimes God sends or permits afflictions as a means of preventing us from sinning. Something that's in your way. It's a prevention, an an impediment. And we need to understand that God may have protected you from many temptations or pains of which you are entirely ignorant. What do we pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and lead us not into temptation. What if God leads you not into temptation by putting an affliction in your way that keeps you from going a way you want to go or a place you want to be? And you're just focusing on the bramble. You're just focusing on the impediment. You're just focusing on the obstacle failing to understand that there's a a wiser providence and sovereignty at work here that's keeping you from something that you ought to be kept from. God may, don't ask God to keep you from temptation and then be upset when he does so by sending affliction. Remember Balaam's donkey and how annoyed he was by his donkey that was not staying on the path and then crushed his leg against a wall and he was beating the donkey and saying, why are you doing this? Stop. And he kept hitting it in a harsh and wicked way. And then God opens the mouth 
of the donkey, and the donkey speaks and said, there's an angel with a sword that I saw, and I was taking you away from it, lest it destroy you. Balaam was entirely ignorant of the threat to his life, the danger. All he could focus on was the annoying donkey and his crushed leg. So also, brethren, at times, God is keeping us from things of which we are unaware. And we need to be humble, humble ourselves, and thank God that he prevents us from sinning at times by affliction. And you may say, but how can I know what I don't know? (laughs) Well, you need to be humble and trust that God has wise purposes and say, this may be keeping me from something that God does not want me to have in his wise wisdom and providence. Don't be surprised if God hedges your way and then if those hedges have thorns. Humble yourself under his mighty hand by acknowledging that your afflictions have been or may have been a direct contribution to keeping you from sin. Fifthly, to reveal deep sin. To reveal deep sin. If you go to the doctor and they would like to perform a stress test, do they say, please jump up and down twice? No. Do they say, please raise your hands over your head once? No. Do they say, please walk back and forth around this small room one time? No. What do they do? They ask you to to walk briskly or to run uh, as fast as you can for as long as you can. They want to put your endurance to the test to stress your body. And that's when real strength is shown, that you are able to endure and persist, that your strength lasts more than a mere moment. But if you're never stressed and you're never challenged, then you would never know that your limit is so shallow. And so one of the reasons that God permits or sends afflictions in our lives is to show us how shallow our limits are or where the limits, where the depth of our sin may be. If you drive over a bridge, you have a reasonable amount of confidence that it's been designed to withstand the stresses and the weights of the normal traffic that passes over it, and hopefully the more than normal traffic that might pass over it at any given time. And if they said, well, we let one car go over it before we opened the bridge, you would say, "Uh, could you please test this bridge a bit longer with more cars and more weight and more traffic for a longer period of time so that we can be sure of the strength of this bridge? Think about Moses, who endured a great deal as leader and mediator and judge uh, of the people of Israel and, and priest also. He was initially judging the whole nation by himself, and then they told him he needed help, and he appointed other men to help him, and that was uh, um, helpful. But Moses still dealt with the complaints and the grumbling and the hard-heartedness, the stubbornness, the ignorance. All of the problems of the people of Israel were brought to him, and he had to deal with a difficult nation. And I'll read this to you. We read about uh, Moses at the waters of Meribah, and this is coming from Psalm 106, verses 32 and 33. It says, They angered him at the waters of Meribah, that's speaking about God, and it went ill with Moses on their account. Something bad happened with Moses at the waters of Meribah. For they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. Do you remember what happened to Moses? God told Moses, speak to the rock, 
and water will come out of it for the people. And Moses was so over it, <laughs> to, to speak in, in common language, he was so done with dealing with the Israelites that instead of speaking to the rock, he was angry, he was impatient, he struck it twice, then the water came out, and as he did so, he yelled at the people. He, he called them names and said, this is because you're so difficult and stiff-necked and hard-hearted. He, he lost his temper. He lost his temper with Israel, and Psalm 106 uh, interprets this as saying, it went ill with Moses on their account. He spoke rashly. He should not have spoken the way he did. He should not have acted the way he did, and he was excluded from Canaan for this. So Moses, who's recorded as the meekest man on the face of the earth in his day, a very patient and meek man who trusts the Lord and withstands difficulty. Meekness is not weakness, but it's a quiet, enduring patience and trust. It's a quiet strength. He was very patient, but he had a limit. There was, deep in Moses, this impatience and this anger, and it took uh, wilderness wandering and Israelite complaining and grumbling and groaning to eventually bring to the surface and fish out Moses' sin. God revealed the deep sin of Moses when his patience snapped and he yelled at the people and, and disobeyed God by striking the rock that God, to which God had told him to speak. It was under prolonged pressure and affliction that Moses' sin was exposed. And at times... God permits long-lasting afflictions in our lives. People say, this too shall pass. Well, you don't know when, and you don't know if in this life. And sometimes it's God's will that affliction persist and remain. And one of the reasons why persistent affliction remains is to reveal and bring to the surface those deeper hidden sins that we need to see. Otherwise, they're never tested they're never exposed, they're never mortified, they're not sanctified. Sixthly, to move us to diligence and obedience. One of God's wise purposes in sending or permitting afflictions is to move us to diligence and obedience. We've just said that afflictions often show our true colors. They show us the reality of our hearts. But thinking in a more positive way, most of these points have been about not living in a certain way. Stop sinning, be convicted of sin, be disciplined for sin, show deep, uh, deep hidden sins and bring them to the surface, uh, move out of sin. Now, in this point and the next, it's more move towards the way we ought to live. And the way we ought to live is one way to put it is in the exercise of our graces the exercise of christian graces or spiritual graces the exercise of spiritual duties also so the fruit of the spirit and the the religious life of the christian is the way that we ought to be living and afflictions at times are sent to teach us to live that way to live the right way not just to stop living in sin but to 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 a greater diligence and obedience unto the lord Perhaps we've neglected prayer. Perhaps we've neglected God's word. Perhaps we've neglected the Lord's day. He sanctified the day, not just the hour. Perhaps we've neglected the Lord's house. And at times when we wander and we're reminded to return, we're reminded not to wander again, but to, to stay close by, 
to stay close to the church, to stay close to God, to stay close to his word. And it's often afflictions and being restored from affliction or, or, or sin that moves us to a greater diligence and a greater obedience. Uh, Mr. Nielsen's Sunday school students will all know Psalm 119.67 if they've paid attention because it's often mentioned there. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You hear that? Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. There's a, there's a now. I live this way. I live obediently and more carefully because I was afflicted and humbled. Now, how does this connect to afflictions more particularly? Well, it's in this way that when you lift something heavy or, or perform a physical exercise that you don't ordinarily perform, what happens? You pull a muscle because that muscle is not accustomed to being used often or in that way or in that, to that degree. And so also certain spiritual graces, certain fruits of the spirit are not often challenged or exercised. And so, so you may be negligent in, in obedience and diligence and certain graces and duties simply because they're not, again, as I said, they're not challenged. What I mean is this, what about Christian courage? Do you have the virtue and, and the grace of, of being courageous for Christ? You may say that you are, but if it's never tested, then you don't really know. And so God may permit an affliction in your life of someone who's aggressive and hostile towards you to teach you to be courageous, to teach you to be bold and confident in your faith. Perhaps you think you're patient, because there's nothing that's really testing your patience. It's like someone who says, yeah, we, we have a peaceful marriage, but the peace isn't really from victory, it's from a ceasefire. <laughs> We're just not fighting right now. <laughs> There's a piece that says we love each other and we talk to each other. And then th there's a piece that's, well, we're just not fighting at the moment. You see, you may think that it, it appears as peace, but it's not peace. It may appear as courage, or it may, you may think you're courageous, but you're not. You may think you're patient, but you're not. And afflictions oftentimes move us to a greater diligence and obedience by challenging us to exercise Christian graces and duties in which we've been negligent or which are not often tested. We need to remember, as the scriptures say, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. We need to be reminded what is pleasing to God is to fear him and to serve him, to be religiously devoted, to be exclusively devoted to God and to live for him. This is what I need to do. And afflictions often remind us that I need to be more diligent, more obedient, draw closer to God and not stray from him again. What pleases him is bearing fruit. What pleases him is being like his son. What pleases him is doing the things that he has commanded me to do. And some afflictions are designed to teach you and remind you of precisely that. Stay close to God. Stay close to the church. Stay close to the brethren. Stay on the, the middle of the path, the, the, the narrow path. And if an affliction moves you to greater obedience and diligence, then you are humbling yourself under God's mighty hand. Seventhly and lastly, to move us to vigilance and perseverance. To move us to vigilance and perseverance. The Lord has blessed me with the opportunity to travel quite a bit. 
And this summer, I had the opportunity to be in Istanbul in Turkey. And in all of my international travels, I think that's probably the most unsafe I've ever felt. That was my perception. Was that the reality? I can't say, but that's how I felt. I felt very unsafe. No one is my friend here. <laughs> no one wants to be, no one wants to help me. No one's here for my good in this place. Everyone wants to try to take advantage of me, not necessarily to hurt me or harm me or rob me or something, but I didn't feel that others were concerned for my well-being and my safety, but rather I was there as a possible object of profit or benefit for them at my expense, fairly or unfairly. Was that a fair judgment of them? I can't say. Bear with me for saying that. That's just how I felt. And I had a sense, because we, were, we had the blessing of being on a cruise for this, I had a constant sense of, I want to be back on the boat. I want to be back on the boat. I'm glad I got to visit this place, but I'd rather see it from the ship. <laughs> I want to be back on the boat. Sometimes afflictions are sent to wean us from this world, to make us more vigilant, more awake, more aware, and to encourage us to keep going. Don't stop here. This is not your home. We need to have that mindset, I can't stay here. I must keep going. There's no rest here. As Christians, as Peter's been teaching us throughout his entire letter, we need to have a pilgrim mindset, an exile mindset. As many have said, we are in the world, but not of the world. And yes, we do make a, a home here. And yes, we do have a home country here. But it is not our true home or our lasting country. And at times we get too comfortable in this foreign country. And we begin to adopt its way of thinking and its way of living. As we've said before, our Christian confrontation in our culture is not so much persecution as it is seduction be comfortable and sleepy, to be at home and, and happy in this, in this culture and its way of living, its way of thinking, its way of acting. And at times, afflictions are sent to wake us up to this, to be more vigilant and aware and awake and alert, to say, this is all going to burn. This will all be reduced to nothing. What has Peter just said? The end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. If we're afflicted and it makes us more watchful, more careful in persevering, I must keep going. I must keep going. I can't stop here. Then we are humbling ourselves under God's mighty hand. But if we say, no, I want to be comfortable here. No, I want all the pleasures in this life. Then we're resisting. We're not humbling ourselves. And I want to conclude in this point by saying that when we do this, when we persevere to that home country as pilgrims and exiles, we need to do so, and we ought to do so, understanding that we're following Jesus Christ. We're following our Lord and our love and our liege. That's what he did. He endured affliction. He endured suffering. Why? So that he would enter into glory for us. And that's how Peter began this epistle, that we've been born again unto a living hope, that there's a, a perfect, unfading, incorruptible inheritance that's waiting for us because Jesus suffered and then entered into glory. He's already won it for us. He's already completed it for us. He's already gone ahead of us. And so when we say be vigilant and persevering, it's not the fatalism of it's all going to burn, so just keep going to the end. No, it's this is nothing. There's something so much better. 
and it's guaranteed for us, it's reserved for us, it's preserved for us, and we for it. So keep going, not, not keep going, keep going, and then nothing, but press on to glory. Press on to the glory won by Jesus Christ. And if the Lord takes away wealth or health here and now, then it may be to make us all the more vigilant and persevering to say, there's, there's nothing for me here. It's all waiting for me ahead. This is not my home. Jesus had no home here. He had no earthly glory here. He had no health. He had no wealth. And what motivates us to a greater perseverance? It's not just the command itself. It's seeing Jesus. It's the example of Jesus, knowing he has already accomplished it. And if it was good for him, it's good for me. The servant is not greater than the master. So our perseverance and vigilance is not fatalism, it's faith. It's not, well, that's the end, but there's the end, I see it. It's not defeat, it's destiny. We watch with hope. And what makes us watchful? At times, it's afflictions. First, derision, then renown. First, the cross, then the crown. Brothers and sisters, we need to trust not only that God's hand is mighty, but that God's hand is also wise. And these seven purposes are some of God's wise purposes in permitting or sending afflictions in our lives as we press on after Jesus, looking to him and waiting for him and following him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your wisdom and your power. We thank you that you have loving, fatherly purposes in all the afflictions that you send or permit. We pray that you would help us to humble ourselves under your mighty and wise hand to be convicted of sin, to learn the bitterness of sin, to show deep, hidden sin, to bring glory to your name, to move us to greater diligence and vigilance. We pray that you would help us not to grumble or groan, but to show our sincerity. Help us not to curse you, but to bless you at all times, knowing that there is an incorruptible glory that awaits us because Jesus awaits us. And we ask you to do this in Jesus' name.